Okay. Welcome, everybody, to the Unnormalized Podcast. This is your host, Frankie A., and today I'm really ecstatic. Um, I'm joined by somebody um, who has over 45 years in the acting biz and the entertainment industry. Today I'm joined with Jeffrey Weissman, who is actually an actor, director. He does education. He's an overall funny man. Um, And welcome, Jeffrey. I appreciate you taking your time out of your day today to sit down with me and talk about the life unnormalized. Hello, Frankie. Um, Funny man. (laughs) Looks on everything. Well, you know what? Um, Your your resume is totally impressive, and uh, I just love your work. I think it's Phenomenal! I think you're um, send money. <laughs> send money, right? Join the club. Um, no, I think that you um, um, a caliber of your um, craft um, is something that we're kind of lacking now in in entertainment. Someone who um, kind of puts their all into their work and um, gives us great characters and people to make us laugh. I think we, you know, in today's climate of division and discourse, we kind of need that back into our lives a little bit. We need to be able to just kind of breathe and relax and laugh and enjoy life. So, um, I mean, you flatter me. I, (laughs) I can't hold a candle to some of the great talents out there. I, I, uh, but I try, I, I love, uh, what can I say? I love life. I love, making people laugh and entertaining and also doing storytelling that enlightens and expands and celebrates. And and that's just a testament to the body of your work is like so awesome. Um, So Jeffrey, tell everybody out there um, who's listening. I always like to get a little background of the people that I'm sitting down and talking to, because it kind of helps us appreciate um, kind of what, comes into all your your work and where that lends from um so you know just tell us a little bit about yourself like where you've grown up and family and all that kind of stuff okay uh i was born uh at a very early age um <laughs> in a hospital just because i want to be close to my mom i <laughs> i've been told that i was funny as a baby i i had incidences apparently in my high chair at the dinner table where i uh, one story in particular, in the middle of dinner, I, I shouted out, shit! <laughs> and in, you know, 1959, uh, yeah. that was kind of heavy, and, and uh, everyone dropped their fork, and, and my mother apparently said, Jeffrey, where did you learn such a word? And, and I, I immediately said, Mikey, my, my brother, my older brother, and, and he was like, what? No, that wasn't me, and I, and I apparently uh, said, Mikey, you know I liar, or something like this. Uh, and, you know, this little legendary stories like this that came to me as I got older about my youth. And uh, my wife now says that I'm often funny in my sleep. So <laughs> I, I think it's my nature. I, I belong to a, a fraternity of mad men and women called the Fool's Guild. And okay. we... We often get together and do parties with different themes, and everyone pitches in to either build the sets and decorations, and everyone dresses up and oh, plays. Oh, that's so party. cool! So yeah. cool! I was I was their nineteenth king, and now they're up to the thirty eighth or thirty ninth king. Or wow, it can be female, but we spell it Q U I N G queen king. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, you you, you got to keep it you know fair but, to uh, everyone. <laughs> And the, and those uh, the the Fool's Guild kind of came out of uh, something I did early in my life. In about '73, I I discovered the uh, the original Renaissance Fair, the Renaissance Pleasure Fair in yeah. Los Angeles, and I felt like I had found home here. I was able to celebrate history and education while having a blast and you know partying and being underage and being able to party it was kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that um, environmental theater. Thing where I could improvise and do scripted work and and play uh, really felt like I could finally breathe. You know, I like doing theater in, in school and such, uh, but the the fun that was being had was just m- measureless, measureless, yeah, yeah uh, boundless. Mm-hmm. And out of those fairs, a lot of jugglers and jesters 
so on and so forth, the creative types started this guild, the Fool's Guild. So there's, gotcha. there's that history. All right, cool. So so that was that like your when you, you first did the Renaissance Fair, um, was that like your definitive moment where you said to yourself, Jeffrey, like, wow, this is something that I, you know, that's just not a passion or a hobby, that it's something that I actually want to do like as a career or profession and make a life out of it. Uh, that it, well, it, it built on t- to a discovery earlier. I, I I think I was, gosh, maybe five or six years old. Mm-hmm. I had uh, the opportunity with my babysitter to hmm. meet a celebrity at my father's club. My dad used to run private uh, bridge and gin and backgammon clubs, and uh, we stopped by his club. And he introduced my babysitter and and I, me with her to Omar Sharif, who was there. Wow. And, uh, and she was giddy. And I, I was quite fond of my babysitter. I don't know if you have had crushes <laughs> on older women. And, uh, and I saw this. And then, you know, after meeting Omar, we went and saw him on the big screen in, I think it was Le Mans or, you know, one, one of his uh, films there in the early 60s, mid 60s. And... Uh, I saw her get giddy again, and and I was like, well, if that's how I get her attention, I'm gonna be a. a an I want I want in. <laughs> well, I have to. I have to say, when you did yeah. say your babysitter, my mind went in like a totally different direction. A direction maybe that it shouldn't have. <laughs> well, I I started doing shows on stage at the local parks and rec, and then community theater and and school junior high. I, I really didn't have encouragement from my, my parents. I was just going to ask you that because, um, you know, a, a big, you know, we talk about pop culture and stuff here on the show, but I'm a, a social worker by trade. And, um, you know, the reason why I kind of started doing this is because um, I'm all about changing language and perception of things. And, you know, there's that word normal that's out there and um, it can trap people into, you know, boxes. And when I often work with people, I try to break, I try to like strip that word out of their vocabulary because, and I came up with the concept of uh, normalize because, you know, people get so fixated on doing the conventional um, that they kind of lose sight on some of the things that give them really joy and passion, and I feel like when you kind of work in that sphere of doing what you love and doing what you know you may have a God-given talent for, um, and we kind of put that aside because we feel like we shouldn't explore those things. Um, so I kind of try to advocate for people and to educate people that you know the unconventional path, which may be easier, um, is not always the road to what's going to bring you the best fulfillment, value, purpose in life. So um, I often, when I'm talking to guests, it's a commonality, Jeffrey, when um, I bring up this part of the show, um, and they're talking about their family, and that's one thing that everybody kind of has in common is that when they go to pursue that itch that you know whatever fire kind of sparks up and says this is what i want to do family is always a a part that comes up so i'm always interested to hear how you know because it's not every day your you know your kid comes home and says hey i want to be an actor you know um, they heard it a lot from me i i hadn't uh i couldn't really get it out of my system Mm -hmm. and uh, they, though, were c- coming from a couple different protective places. They sure. Actors, uh, Don Adams, oh, my dad was, uh, you know, from Get Smart, and, and my dad was partners with Lauren Green and uh, Benny Barnes. A lot of mm-hmm. famous uh, stars uh, played uh, cards or whatever at, at their clubs, and they saw them gambling and drinking and smoking and swearing all day, and they didn't want me to see that life, and they had sure. how hard it was to make a living at this, but I, I just couldn't get it out of my system. And like you said, I was always, uh, even though we were uh, liberal Democrats, I think they were very conservative in their uh, views. We were raised with pretty strict uh, bedtimes and uh, kind of a blinders on to 
even though we were liberal, there wasn't always a lot of liberal progressive thinking. So uh, my sister and I were kind of radical based on our older siblings' actions during the sexual revolution growing up uh, through all that uh, mishigas that uh, was going on in the home there and in society. And and watching the, the civil rights movement and watching all these things that I, I just was like, what's going on here? Why are people treating each other that way? Led me in, in my schooling mm-hmm. to be attracted to the outcasts. I'd gotcha. often hang with uh, gays and lesbians who were, you know, they, they were barely, you know, in their the adolescence, you know, the 13 to 15 year olds. And they knew they were gay, but, you know, the, the sexual uh, activity hadn't really kicked in that much. Uh, and yet they were still afraid because often in, in the sc- public schools that I was in, there was a lot of homophobia and a lot of racism. There was always uh, putting down of uh, Latinos and uh, blacks. And, and I remember it because I moved around a lot. There was integration mm-hmm. uh, like from fourth to sixth grade. During integration, uh, I did not have filters based in prejudices, and and I had my best friends were a, a Japanese kid, a, a Latin kid, and a, a African American kid. Mm. And uh, then later on, seeing really kind of blatant uh, clickiness and blatant, uh, you know, the surfers that I went to high school with were going to go fag bopping on Saturday night, or the the uh, Crips and the Bloods were having a, uh, you know, a brawl in the parking lot down at the beach. You know, these, the uh, uh, just bizarre kind of prejudice and hatred that was going on just didn't, uh, it was disgusting. It was yeah. very uh, disturbing. And uh, it's, uh, even though we had, say, eight years of uh, Obama and supposedly really great progressive uh, thinking in the country, you know, one step forward, two steps back, it seems mm-hmm. now. And yeah. uh, it's uh, going to take a lot of people with compassion to help those who are stuck in their ways to break down, uh, you know, the, the mold the, the, and, and rebuild with, um, you know, enlightenment and, and knowledge and compassion. I was just going to say that to you, like, you know, how, you know, that must be something to see, like, coming up and ex- everything that you kind of just said about the different groups out there that were kind of out there but, you know, didn't have um, platforms like we have today um, to I've, kind of – now we're kind of, like, getting back full circle, right, back to that, you know, and it's very disconcerting because – um, you know, it, 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 it's just causing so much divide and, and separation between people. And well, you would think by, by now we would be a little bit more progressive about things, you know. We've seen a great deal that I didn't think we would, I would hope that I'd get to see in my lifetime. But here I'm now entering my 60s and uh, we've had uh, an African-American president. We've seen uh, gay rights for gay marriage. Uh, we've seen a pot legalized in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, those are those are huge for for someone who grew up in the, the conservative early 60s and, and 70s. Uh, a lot of that is really it's lovely to see. It's not nearly enough. Yeah. And like you said, uh, uh, to be in a, involved in a, a, a business where we are the trailblazers, the entertainment mm-hmm. world, Hollywood, is looked upon by the world yeah. as uh, the moral keepers. And there was something my mother used to say when we'd go to the movies and, and there would be a violence on, on screen. She goes, you know, that's not entertainment. You know, and, and when I got cast in a Clint Eastwood movie and read the script with all the Clint's mystical ghost-like character coming back and getting revenge for the poor Tin Panners, which I was a part of uh, for the mayhem and death and, and uh, terrible things that went on. At the, and he takes everyone out in the final scenes. Uh, I was like, well, my mother wouldn't like me doing this. Mm-hmm. And maybe I should not. And and I almost almost walked away from the project. But I was like, how? This, no, this is the biggest part of being off, I've been offered uh, up to this point in my career in 1984. And... Uh, so and, and my mom was fine with me taking the role after all, but mm-hmm. 
Well, no, no. I think you, I think you, you, you hit a good uh, point that I often feel like. Um, I think the industry is often looked at like, you know, it's entertainment, but there's something about what the entertainment world does. It, it tells a story. It's almost like a time capsule for people, for us to look back and see, you know, where progression happens. Um, you're, you guys are the ones that kind of, like you said, you're trailblazers. You're talking about the things that people in their homes may be talking about that maybe they're not talking about in, in the greater world. Um, and it brings a conversation and a platform, um, especially in my field. I work in behavior and mental health. Um, so it's been a big push from the entertainment industry um, with so many celebrities and, and you know, accomplished um, people in their craft coming out and talking about it. And I think when you have the conversation and the dialogue, it helps to break down stigma. It helps to raise awareness. Um, it, it brings it to the kitchen table rather than like something people whisper behind like closed doors or, you know, behind curtains. So um, I love that you said that because that's often how I feel about the industry is, you know, like where would we be if we didn't have, entertainment to wrap around the 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 more important messaging behind it so uh, and it's a double uh double benefit in that uh, a lot of it is escapism from the tensions mm -hmm. and uh horrors that we see in the real world and then it also like you say is enlightening for the lessons learned from the stories that being told yeah 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 um and and there's something about um, doing it in the way that you kind of do it, um, taking on these roles where you're really immersing yourself in the character. I mean, talking about like prosthetics and all that kind of stuff. Um, you're not just. Yeah, I'm doing a, I'm in rehearsals right now for a stage show. Awesome. Where I'm playing uh, a, a, a kidnapped EPA bureaucrat. <laughs> okay. Uh, because the. Uh, the kind of local guerrilla uh, terrorist um, wants to bring movement into the clean water world. Mm. The show was written in 85. Wow. And it's still very relevant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, I, and it's funny because the, there's really no winner in this, in the denouement of the show. The, uh, the bureaucrat is, is caught up in a, a system that is underfunded and uh, there's too many managers and supervisors and hard to get, uh, you know, the, the feds are spread too thin. And at the time this was written, there was everything from the remnants of Love Canal to the fallout from Chernobyl, you know, all mm. these different things going on at the time. Uh, and, and the terrorists, uh, you know, is, is shows basic uh, humanity who's been pushed beyond because uh, there's not a, a satisfactory response to protecting innocence from these mm. horrible uh, man-made disasters. So it's, uh, it's really, you know, a, an enlightening piece and nice to be a part of. And, and very relevant today with everything that's going on with, you know, the global crisis that's going on. And, uh, you know, it's amazing that it was written in like 85, you said, and... Mm. Mm -hmm. it, and and it's it's still current and relative and still so much. Um, when I was twelve in seventy one, uh, I won a, an optimist oratorical speech contest with a nice. piece that I wrote on uh, our challenge uh, the environment with pollution uh, mm. uh, at at the forefront of my mind because the local little duck pond that I was wading in, I, you know, was wading in it and stepped in, stepped on a half a Coke bottle and cut my foot open and, and saw all the dead fish and, the, you know, the, all these different things uh, added up that I was, what did I, what was important that I wanted to talk about? I said, well, everyone uh, is of course just tired of smog alerts that we were on in Los Angeles on a regular basis and, and the polluting, 
the pollution that was rampant in in the uh, canals and the ponds in our neighborhood, and just think of it on this global uh, mark, uh, stage. I, I was on uh, a cruise. I, I played various characters at Universal Studios for 13 years, uh, Stan Laurel and Charlie Chaplin and Groucho Marx, and I had written a Laurel and Hardy magic and uh, comedy show, and through Legends of Las Vegas got a cruise out of, the, out of Singapore in the South China Sea in the mid-90s, and while traveling from Singapore to Indonesia to Mal Malaysia and Thailand, uh, I, I witnessed firsthand how polluted the South China Sea is because there's mm. regulation there. The ships just dump their waste and they dump all the garbage and the plastic all over the beaches in Thailand. It's uh, No one wants to take responsibility because it's such a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think it's something like because it's such a huge problem that um, a lot of the times we don't know how to wrap our, our heads around coming up with viable solutions for the problem. Um, I, I, I often tell people that advocates are, are born and bred from a very young age. Um, you kind of start at a young age from... Um, identifying with things that you feel really connected to and then start kind of lending your voice to those things. Um, I, I'm a very passionate person about the environment, public education, uh, and of course, behavior, mental health. So, um, you know, I think that's wonderful. I, I play a, a father of an autistic boy in a, a web series called the rocket family chronicles. And uh, the actor who plays my son was actually one of my students for a while. Oh, cool. And uh, Sam, um, he is uh, autistic, and he's, but he's a high-functioning autistic mm -hmm. lad, and he's just uh, a, a sweetheart of a kid. And the, the story is told through his camera because he wants, the character wants to be a director. So he's always shooting and also is partly told through the house's security cams. It's very creative and very fun. Very cool. I think it's on the Autism Channel now. Oh, cool. I'll have to check it out, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah so, uh, you know, it's with lending those voices and, and, and you put, you know, allowing yourself to be part of those projects, um, things that you kind of, like, feel passionate about, um, I think is, is, you know, something that we need more of you, Jeffrey, out there that, you know, you know you're a you you have all this great you know um, acting and entertainment experience, but you also are, from what I can just tell from talking to you, a very deep you know passionate person about issues that are concerning people out there. And um, we can get you to lend your voice and stuff like that. That's for a person who works with people like that every day. I can tell you tell you the Rembrandts are felt from that. Um, well, I, I started. Community. I started uh, um, volunteering for things that, uh, for charities or, or organizations that would allow me to also perform if I could. Example, uh, when I was still uh, probably about 14, 13, uh, I, I volunteered for the uh, Jeffrey Foundation, which uh, uh, helped disabled kids and I'd dress up as the Easter Bunny and lead the kids in their wheelchairs on their, their Easter egg hunt or uh, Red Cross for the, their pancake breakfast where I could do sketches or uh, and then of course uh, as an adult because of my celebrity working with in the Clint Eastwood films or the Back to the Future movies uh, helping out with the Heart Association and uh, I even for the 30th anniversary of the Back to the Future franchise in 2015 uh, produced a fundraiser cruise with the Back to the Future theme to raise money for Michael's Parkinson's Research Foundation through Team Fox. Awesome. And I put together a band of cast members. Uh, I was his, reading. I was reading that. Yeah. We're called Mr. Fusion, and uh, so I, I give back what I when I can. I'm not a, a big enough star, I think, or have enough clout to uh, really swing the bat big time. But I I do what I can. Yeah, and 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 it's it's felt, Jeffrey, and uh, it it just it means a lot to me when I meet people, um, you know, not just in entertainment or celebrity or anything like that, but you know, just the average 
everyday person who is really committed and passionate however they can lend their voice whether it be on a large scale small scale local scale um whatever people can do to pitch in i think that it makes people invested into um problems and finding out solutions and it's um a great thing to see i, I love being part of um that whole kind of atmosphere where <laughs> yeah I I've, from doing the uh, promotions for that cruise, I, I went to a lot of fan cons of uh, WonderCon and Comic-Con and uh, Wizard Worlds and so on and so forth, whether I was invited or not, so I could promote the cruise. And the cosplayers that I meet, many of the cosplayers, especially in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere, uh, go regularly to the hospitals and, mm. and entertain as their superhero characters, whatever cosplay their, their specialty is. And, and entertain the kids who are stuck in a hospital bed. And That's, I, I just love that. It's, yeah. uh, I'm going to get uh, right here. And so yeah. the, I had a, a, one of my cosplay Uber Back to the Future fans actually make my uh, George McFly Part 2 uh, action figure. That is so cool. <laughs> is, uh, George hanging upside down. He must have a laser or a, you know, a 3D printer or something. I'm not sure how he did this, but it's... It's That's fantastic. so cool. That's so cool. So like, okay, so you're, you're talking about, um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I am a super like pop culture toy person. I go to comic cons and stuff. I collect all that kind of stuff. So that's definitely an awesome piece to have in your own collection. Um, so the, the commercial, the Tycho uh, George McFly action figure uh, doesn't quite look like Crispin and it doesn't quite look like me. Mm. So, I don't have a problem signing that. So uh, the thing is, and I think I only know one fan, uh, Ryan Weber, who's up there in, in New Jersey. Uh, I think he has both Crispin's and my autograph on, on his. Oh, cool, cool. Go, and, <laughs> well, local Jersey boy, you know, you see how we do. We get we get what we want. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, like, how is like, how is that, you know, like, working in, you know, like, was that like the first time you had to like all the prosthetics and all that kind of stuff? Was this like the first time that you were like, I mean, cause that was like intense. Uh, <clears throat> was that the first time I had worn the prosthetics? Like to that degree, to that magnitude where like you're basically shifting your face to look like somebody totally different. Yeah. I, well, I do projects in school where we'd have to pick someone from history to portray, or I had uh, played, like I mentioned, uh, classic Hollywood comics, uh, but never had I had to wear uh, a mask or prosthetics to create uh, another actor yeah, or to create a character from a previous film. And because I, I knew Crispin from a film we did together in at the American Film Institute in 83 before he got George in the first film. Uh, I, I thought, uh, you know, he was a great actor. I got his number to stay in touch. And when the first film came out, I called him to, you know, tell him what a fantastic job I thought he did. And, you know, he was, he was already on his way to a, a great career. And when I was approached in 89, I guess it was 88, 80, 88 to, uh, be his photo double, I called and left him a message and said, you know, my, I'm up for being your photo double stand in, you know, please give me a good word, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. I need to make my, my medical coverage for my, the birth of my second son. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he didn't call back until part three came out and he was ready to sue because little did I know they didn't have permission for mm -hmm. uh, them to make me up to look like him. And they didn't get permission for the usage, the reusage of footage from the first film that they cut with my work. Gotcha. A lot of fans out there don't realize that the the action that where you see George beating up Biff uh, or getting his arm twisted and then laying Biff low and, and kissing Lorraine on the dance floor uh, when they return to 55 in part two is is all me. Mm. Uh, they all think that's Crispin, but it's not. It's it's mostly my work cut with a few close-ups of Crispin. Gotcha, and, gotcha. And, it, you know, it's, yes, terribly misleading. 
uh, I can see how the producers were cornered because Crispin wanted to hold out for better money or script approval or whatever he wanted. Uh, but it, I just still think it's uh, not right that they went ahead and used his likeness and reused footage without his approval. And so naturally, uh, Universal saw that they probably would not win in court and settled out of court before it went to, to court. A lot of people mm -hmm. say, oh, he, he won his case. And it's no, it never went to court. It settled before it went, went to court. But, uh, you know, it, I, I have to say also over the years, it's, it's been hard to see Crispin not let go of his bitterness. You know, he made his three quarter of a million dollars. Mm -hmm. And uh, but Bob Gale, the producer, also hasn't let go of his bitterness. So it's it's this ongoing Hatfield and McCoy thing. Gotcha. And, and it's a pity because it ha if they would let go of the animosity and come together, say, for Michael's charity. Absolutely. Or, or for the fans, mm -hmm. it would be a really lovely thing. And I, I'm going to encourage it as long as I can. I, I encourage you to encourage it because for both of those reasons, I mean, um, I mean, Back to the Future is just such a part of culture, you know, pop culture. Um, generation after generation to embrace it. It's really I have, Yeah, I have a 17-year-old son, and when you were coming on, um, like you've seen Back to the Future, the first one, and I think he stopped there. But we kind of rewatched it, and I was telling him how – you know how everything kind of went down and it, there's it's still the likability of it the connection that it even has throughout the you know the generations is amazing you don't get a lot of pieces of work that stand the test of time and if they can get together for michael's charity i mean even if just that not for the fans but for a purpose for uh, a way to bring awareness and and funds and all that kind of stuff yeah. to to a major health problem um you know especially because it's impacting one of their well the main star of their their movie um you know exactly every everyone loves michael and, yeah. it, and really it's all about him at this point everyone wants to see him his his charity find a cure, help find a cure and uh, keep him around because he's really a wonderful spirit. And I'm not, uh, Bob Gale's a, a, a nice man. Crispin's actually a nice man. They're both eccentric in their ways and kind of stubborn. So it's really unfortunate. Yeah. And, and uh, get I, it, guys. <laughs> yeah, get over it. You know, like there's so much that, um, that everybody can kind of benefit from. Um, and, you know, at this point, you know, how long are you going to drudge out the past? And there's right. at some point you got to let things go. We're 30 years on, guys. Come on. Yeah, 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 exactly. So um, and it's going to uh, it's gonna rear its head again with the anniversary of the release coming up and Back to the Future Day coming up and all. And, you know, people, uh, the press, the media will contact me and try to spin it into something wicked. Yeah. That uh, happened during the 30th anniversary of the first film where – uh, Variety and the Hollywood Reporter tried to reach me, and and I, you know, the day of for mm. a comment, I'm like, I've I've got three, five other bookings on this anniversary day. Wait, <laughs> are you a good reporter? Uh, <laughs> it's very odd. Uh, yeah, they like to spin to the lowest common denominator, which uh, I guess sells. I don't I don't think it actually reflects well on on the journalists or the papers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we live in that reality TV world where um, everybody wants to kind of see – I see you shaking your head. They kind of want to see, like, everybody's downfall. Um, and we have enough of that. In, we, we have need, enough of that. We need to build each other up and, and uh, save the damn planet before time runs out on us. Yes, I, I, I totally 100% agree. Um, so, like – Jeffrey, when all these great roles that you play, how do you, um, you know, how do you like immerse yourself into it? Is it some like, especially where you may not? Well, um, no, you're asking for an acting class. <laughs> well, I, I do what what it takes. I, I'll try to, of course, do as much research as possible 
if uh, example, I, I fell into between TV and, and film roles, fell into playing Stan Laurel mm-hmm. and who I remembered a little bit of Laurel and Hardy watching their films on TV growing up. Uh, but I, I got them all wrong. Uh, when I auditioned, uh, ironically, the actor playing Oliver Hardy, who's named Beavis Faversham, had seen my work. He had uh, run a theater where I'd played Mercutio in a production of Romeo and Juliet in Hollywood. And he turned to the boss and, and said, I, I know he's getting it wrong, but he's got talent. I'll train him. And within a few weeks, I was doing a passable Stan Laurel. And eventually I became one of the premier Stan Laurel impersonators uh, around the world. Uh, I was I became friends with Lois, Lois Laurel and Tony Haas, Stanley's daughter and, and her husband, and was embraced by the Sons of the Desert, uh, representing the boys at some very big con- conventions like Hal Roach's Centennial and Babe Hardy's Centennial. And uh, a year after putting Stan Laurel together, I immersed myself in, in studying Charlie Chaplin because their number one Charlie, I felt, wasn't doing a, a good job. And, and it kind of kicked him into gear. It, it was a catalyst for upping everyone's game and giving respect to Charlie Chaplin's genius. And learning about Stan Laurel, uh, he studied, since he was a little child, the music hall life and comedians mm-hmm. and performers through his father's theaters. And he borrowed from the greats, from Dan Lino and Little Titch and so on and so forth. And uh, it became, uh, I don't want to say a, 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 a rabbit hole, but it became rather exciting for me to see this tree of my acting family that stretches back hundreds of years and yeah. learning about uh, silent film and talkie film, early talkie film comedians like Lupino Lane, who he's not totally forgotten. His niece uh, was Ida Lupino, and, but his family was five generations of clowns and acrobats. And he, his physical comedy is on, a same par, on the same par as Chaplin and Buster Keaton's. And, and uh, then, of course, finding out of Charlie Chase's brilliance and Harold Lloyd's brilliance and, you know, and being immersed now in, in the preservation world, it's, it's just really thrilling, something I probably wouldn't have done had I just stayed strictly in Hollywood castings and, and TV and uh, film. Uh, so in, in, in a way, my unusual trajectory of my career to do this theme park work uh, heightened and deepened my uh, experience of, of my acting. And okay. uh, I've taken it into other characters. I now uh, play uh, Mark Twain. I'm currently writing a one-man show of Twain's shadow life. He was plagued with tragedies all through his life that mm-hmm. barely anyone touches on. And I think it's a, a juicy, meaty uh, topic. And I got to play Twain. It was the first time I'd ever auditioned to be Twain. I was cast in a documentary uh, that PBS showed uh, premiered just last year called uh, Dreamland, Mark Twain's Journey to Jerusalem. And uh, it, it opened the, the floodgates for me because I immersed myself once again into research. I have now, I don't know, 26 books on Twain, uh, including, you know, his 3,000 page uh, volume uh, autobiography. Each, each volume is seven to 900 pages easily. Oh, I could imagine. And, uh, and and finding what I can of his mannerisms, uh, you know, there are supposedly he recorded on dictaphone early in his office, but those recordings don't exist. And there are no other cylinder records or uh, early flat discs extant of him. But William Gillette, who made uh, Sherlock Holmes famous on the American stage, lived next door to Twain. Mm. And. There is a recording you can find on YouTube of William Gillette imita- imitating how Mark Twain sounded. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah, it is. But and then again, it's he's imitating Twain as an old man. Mm. <laughs> so, and, and I was playing Twain in that film, uh, you know, in his 30s when he went to the uh, Sandwich Islands and to Europe and, and the Holy Land. So I, I basically, uh, you know, taking mannerisms I see from the various footage, silent footage I find of him. And then from his reading, from his writings, rather, you get a sense of his pacing, of his mm-hmm. lecture, so on and so forth. So I will uh, try to find the pacing of the character. I'll try to find the physicalization. When I was asked to do young George uh, or take over the role of George McFly, of course, I was given uh, Crispin's screen tests and the film to watch over and study 
his mannerisms and how he, his center of gravity, uh, his pacing, which is very unique, uh, his his inflections, you know, the way mm-hmm. he speaks and and uh, that laugh, <laughs> you know, the, yeah. all, all these classic. <laughs> Uh, so I was, and maybe because I have Mercury in my astrological <laughs> chart, uh, I'm able to do these imitations and work on them. But anyone really can put together a character. It's uh, though you know it takes homework and a lot of detail yeah. work on on physicalizing of relationship understanding and and history understanding and, and bringing it all together. Uh, there's you know, some of the legendary actors like Olivier would go to the National Gallery and, and find a painting of the characters that he would play, whether it was Richard or uh, someone else from history that it was in the Shakespeare, what have you. And, and it would spend hours with the painting, just getting an idea of the facial structure and the postures and then recreating it. Uh, uh, also, you know, borrowing from the greats, the other mm-hmm. performers who played characters down through the ages, a lot of their performances or descriptions of, the, of their performances are extant and you can you can borrow from them and uh, sure. they're probably honored <laughs> yeah and 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 thanks for the master class by the way um sure. we'll I, I, <laughs> any any proceeds i'll send your way but i don't i the reason why i kind of wanted to ask you is because we may have some people young and old out there who are watching and listening and Maybe on that verge of saying to themselves, is this this what I, you know, what I want to do? And they need to understand that this is a craft and it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be, there's education that comes behind it. There's a lot of work that you have to put into it. So it's out there that will take advantage of a hungry actor. There's a lot of young up and comers that, they want to do it. They want the fame and they want the fortune and they'll take the shortcuts and they'll go to these cookie cutter actor training programs and uh, their parents or they will spend their savings and tons of money and be put in front of a casting director way too soon, way before mm. they're ever ready. And I was lucky enough that I guess it was in, oh, 78 uh, or so, I I auditioned, I think it was for uh, – uh, Brighton Beach Memories, uh, one of one of the uh, Neil Simon plays, and and the casting director, artistic director, I think it was maybe Gordon Hunt, Helen Hunt's dad. Or, anyway, someone said, you know, you got talent, but you got no training on your resume. No one's going to mm. take you seriously unless you have training. And mm-hmm. well, where, where do you suggest I go? Hey, well, Juilliard, of course, or yeah. you know, one of the Ivy Leagues. And I was like, you know, my parents don't make a lot of money. I don't have a lot of, how about something on the West coast? Is there good training? American conservatory theater. So I went for ACT and finally got in, in the early eighties and did some basic, wonderful training there. And then continued my training, uh, was going into, uh, the advanced program when I got a screen test for a major motion picture. I just lucked out from a cattle call and Martin Brest was the original director on a film that was originally called the genius that later became known as war games. And he told an agent that I was his favorite for, for the role. And because I was wooed by that agent, I moved back from San Francisco to Los Angeles. And luckily, even though I didn't get war games, I had about a 20 year career in Hollywood, uh, starting with my first co-star role, in uh, George Miller's segment of Nightmare, the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 Feet with John Lithgow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I was very fortunate that, I mean, I did often derail my own work uh, out of my own enthusiasm and impatience mm. and, uh, and, and distracted myself often with the, amazing journey I was on sure uh, you know if I, I I always say it took me about 20 years to learn how to not act yeah you know I grew up being a ham or or the center of attention and it takes a long time to retain that but also keep your genuine sense of truth and authenticity and naturalism in the work mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that you have to finesse and, and yeah work. it's like a, it's like a balance that you have to and it's never ending. The training never ends. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, 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 and that's 
why it's a, like I often call it a craft because it Absolutely. is something that is constantly evolving. Um, it's something that you constantly have to put energy and work and learning new techniques and uh, exposing yourself to different experiences. So it kind of will lend to the breadth of your work. I mean, it's, it's yes, absolutely. You, you should always be in some type of movement class or have a movement discipline, whether it's dance, some yoga, some stage combat, mm -hmm. uh, should always be working on voice, doing some singing or diction or dialect work, uh, speech work, and then, you know, keeping your mind fertile by uh, practicing your memorization, uh, your cold reading technique. There's a lot of fronts to work on consistently and uh, consecutively. And uh, it's, it's tough. It's actually never ending. And uh, I tell the first thing I say to any of my students or any uh, wannabe actors or new actors that come to me and say, what's, what's the advice you can give me? I said, get a practical training in something that you can make a living at first. Sure, yeah. And then if it's in your heart, then by all means do it, but get your training. And then do you respect yourself to understand that you are the instrument. Sure, absolutely. You're the vessel for everything that comes out of it. So That's right. No, no other art form, really. Uh, painting has the brushes, and, and uh, a sculptor has the, his hammer and chisel, and, and yeah. musicians have their instruments. But you are it. And if yeah. you're out of tune, if you're not in touch with your different tools at, at hand, uh, and, that, and that's one of the things about my classes, I, I know that, one technique doesn't work for everyone. Mm -hmm. A lot of, a lot of uh, different techniques, these uh, acting gurus uh, are almost cultish. Ours is the only way that's going to work. You know, and yeah. you've got to stick three years with us and not work outside of class because you're going to learn this and this is it. Well, yes, a lot of students will respond and work well with that, but not everyone because they're not wired that way or they don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So I try to bring exercises from the the acting masters and see if a sense memory or an emotion re, emotional recall from Strasbourg works for this actor or if fantasy charging and repetition works for this actor from Meisner or if Stella Adler's action choices and, uh, you know, the relationship with the, the, your environment and your wardrobe and your pacing and time from viewpoints of uh, uh, Tina Landau and, and Bogart, you know, the, or, uh, you know, I try to encourage everyone to explore, to see what resonates for them, and then go in that direction as soon as they find it. Yeah, and it, it's so fascinating to me because you're you're saying all this stuff, and as you're you're saying it, it's actually triggering my mind because a lot of the techniques, and I never thought of it that that this way. Um, I've worked in in performing arts my whole life, but not um, before I became. I was Worked in performing arts centers uh, in arts and education, not on like as a, like an actor or anything like that, but more behind the scenes. And uh, I became a chef after that, and now I work in social work. Um, but a lot of the tools and the techniques that I use every day, um, I'm a life coach. I also do um, straight social work stuff. All the techniques that you're saying that you utilize or you tell your students in your classes are what what I tell my clients to do um, to keep themselves healthy, to keep themselves um, grounded and centered, very person-centered, um, tailored, kind of like your own experience. I give them certain tools, but ultimately, like you said, they're the vessel. Um, and so it's very, it's very, it's, it's, it's something that I never really thought about that, you know, it, it has a lot of those similarities that you were talking about, Jeffrey, um, on how you teach students how to develop their craft and, um, pull from different techniques and styles and strategies. Yeah, it's, so it's one of the biggest keys is being relaxed and, and centered and li listening. Actually, those are three keys. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. I ask that if they don't have it, to f that student finds a centering program, uh, whether it's mm -hmm. meditation, or yoga, 
deepening breath, whatever it takes to stay centered. Because when you're on, example, a, a working set, the film set that's uh, maybe on location, you've got three different bubbles that you're working in. You have the bubble that you're in with, if it's a solo shot, you know, you and the camera and, and the crew right there, or you and the other actor. Uh, and then there's the bubble of the, the crew around you and maybe other actors and support. And then there's the larger bubble, if you're on location, of all the ambience and then the life going on around the set. Mm -hmm. So you've got three different levels of distractions or of concentration, and you need to expand your awareness. Uh, and and the same type of concept even comes up in some acting techniques like Jacques Lecoq's uh, dilation technique. He, he uh, uh, discusses the same type of thing, only when it comes to uh, character development. And, and I'm going to really sidetrack here if I keep going. But uh, <laughs> okay. uh, the, the, those tools, though, that you use for, say, someone in uh, dealing with trauma or someone who's, uh, you know, just uh, off the deep end, whether for one reason or another, uh, those grounding things are essential for their survival. And the same thing is true for an actor in the middle of chaos mm -hmm. when you're having to keep track of script relationships, blocking, and awareness of where the camera is moving, and so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, all good, all good deal, deal. Yeah, it's like a lot of uh, environmental, sensory kind of chaos that kind of, you're right, if you're not in that zone, if you're not grounded, you could kind of get swallowed up in all that yeah. stuff. So, um, like, that, that just... I never made that connection before. So now I have something that I can use with my oh. clients. <laughs> the aha moment. Thank you. you know? a, also in, in character development that uh, to go deeper, understanding often the un, unstated in the script. You mm -hmm. can find clues in the way the writer has a character speaking. If they have a stutter or a behavior that signifies trauma in their history, mm -hmm. whether it's physical or psychological. Uh, it, there's a lot of one-dimensional acting going on out there. Mm. I think a lot of actors fail to uh, honor the unstated, what's not stated in relationships. Mm. You know, television, you have very little time for rehearsal and you know, it's it's a hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. We're going your audition in the morning. If they like you, you're going to the networks in the afternoon, and you're on set the next day or Monday. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and uh, very there's a blocking rehearsal, and that's about it. Mm -hmm. So for an actor to understand that they need to bring to the table behaviors and relationships with all these different things, environmental, your wardrobe your uh, props, all these different things, and then your relationship to your history and to the other characters, you're working on all fronts. And yeah. it's uh, good to be prepared with, with that. Well, I mean, for the people who are out there, who this is not just a good um, example um, just for acting. I think anybody listening or watching can use the – the tools that you kind of gave us here to I coach via Skype. <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, so and that actually brings me to, uh, to kind of my last point and then I'll let you go, Jeffrey um, is where can people who um, want to take part in like your classes and things like that, how would they reach out to you? How do they, um, well, are they, they can uh, email me through my website, uh, jeffreyweissman.com, which unfortunately I haven't updated because no one uses Dreamweaver anymore, and I don't know how to. Well, anyway, I'm getting that website uh, revamped here soon. But you can still email me from the the homepage. I'm also on Twitter at, at jef weissman. I'm on Instagram at uh, it's jeffrey j weissman, and that's w e i s s m a n, and Jeffrey is r e y. Uh, I'm, uh, I have a Facebook fan page, Jeffrey Weissman Actor. Uh, I also 
I'm pretty pretty easy to find through IMDb and elsewhere. I currently teach at the Bay Area Professional Actors Studio. That's bayareaprofessionalactorsstudio.com or bayproact.com, the short version. And you can email through that website. I also am teaching uh, in October at the San Francisco Acting, Acting Academy. And I, like I say, I, I do uh, individual sessions on Skype and live. I've helped develop one-person shows and come in as a consultant for directors on getting deeper performances from actors on set. Um, I consult on castings, and uh, like you mentioned, I, I've directed. I've finally got a directing credit on IMDb up for a, a little short that I directed a few years ago. There's, uh, I love to work, and I love to uh, collaborate. Uh, and you can you can tell like you just like I love talking to people who are so passionate about what they do because it kind of just exudes out of their pores and um, I oh. think <laughs> you're good I can't smell anything here on the East Coast um, but yeah <laughs> I, I I want people to I think it's great um, I'm a techie person obviously and and I am getting into myself doing therapy via kind of this platform um, because I think you could reach a bigger audience, so to say, um, and help people. So I love the fact that you're taking it to that kind of where, you know, somebody on the West Coast may not be able to attend one of your classes in person, but if they're developing a project or they're looking to build their craft and right, all that kind of stuff. Coming up and they want some, some help yeah. with it, what have you. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, available. I, one of my recent students, he uh, he was a pro football player. Mm. He was a lineman uh, for the Seahawks and the Niners, and uh, he wanted to get into broadcasting on on air personality for for both radio and uh, on camera. And when he started studying with me, he really didn't read much, and he was insecure with answering a question. So he would keep the ums and the ah, uh, you knows, and keep, keep stretch out one answer to go for 10 minutes when it could have been a 20 second answer. Yeah. And he was probably one of the best students I ever had because he did his homework. And every time we got back together, he had made such great progress between the three months that I worked with him. He went from that sort of insecure, uh, kind of, you know, not sure what tools he had mm -hmm. at the fingertips to uh, being the color man for uh, the Super Bowl game uh, on national television within three months. And I was just like, did my heart wonders uh, watching a student work so hard and he was fantastic. So, and, and then, uh, you know, I also, I'm, I've mentored folk, both actors and writers uh, through the years. One young uh, filmmaker did a film, he actually brought me out to be in a film that I helped him with the script a bit. Uh, that's in post-production right now. It's called The Eden Theory. Went okay. out the Midwest, and, and he brought myself and Larry Hankin out. For, Larry Hankin was in the committee and mm -hmm. uh, yep. quite a great character actor himself. And uh, great, he hired a great crew from New York and, and his local crew from the Midwest. Uh, and actors just looks like a beautiful project. Uh, that's in post. Another film in post right now um, is called The Carnival of Wonders, and uh, I helped uh, the, uh, the filmmaker of, on that one on a previous project. He thought of me for this one, and it's a, uh, a parable uh, in which I actually play the embodiment of death, but I'm a, a swami, and I don't want to give away too much, but it's uh, got some wild, wonderful uh, existen existential elements in it and lots of great dancing. Awesome. <laughs> love it. I love it. So when when can we see some of these, when uh, The Eden Theory and Carnival of Wonders, when can we kind of They're look out for those? Carnival of Wonders actually premieres tomorrow night uh, nice. and uh, in, in a mostly cast and crew type screening and also some backer fundraiser to do to take it a little bit further so it's ready to do the festival circuit and then okay. see what other life it might have. Eden Theory, like I said, is in post. It'll probably do the festival circuit. Uh, uh, like I mentioned, the uh, the Mark Twain project is streaming mm -hmm. on PBS channel. Uh, the uh, An indie film called Savior of None, in which I play a, 
a sort of a protective angel to a, a adolescent girl who's being abused in the foster care system and uh, being uh, horribly treated by the local gang. Uh, that's streaming on uh, Amazon. Uh, uh, let's see, what else do I have? I'm I'm uh, gearing up to uh, go this weekend uh, to a Back to the Future 3 celebration. Oh, up cool. In, up in the gold country where um, they go to the shooting locations uh, where the train was and to the original site. Example, tomorrow night they're going to screen Back to the Future Part 3 at the site outside of Sonora where they actually shot the film. Oh, that's so cool. And other uh, cast and crew members are going to be there and people from around the world are coming to that one. There's a uh, That one's back to 1885. If you want to check that out online, you can Google that. And then we're going back, fan celebration. Uh, I think this will be the third or fourth one that they've done, and, and that's in October, the third week of October, mm -hmm. uh, going to all the locations that uh, the Back to the Future films shot at around Los Angeles. Okay. And there, there's going to be a block party at the McFly house. Oh, that's so cool. Arletta. Uh, there's going to be an enchantment under the sea dance that I'm hoping Mr. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, rumor is that some very, very big uh, members of the cast and crew are coming to, the, to that. Uh, that's a four-day celebration. That is so cool. And that's, that's We're Going Back fan celebration, something like this. Also, if you go to Stephen Clark's wonderful website, uh, backtothefuture.com, on the events page, a lot of these events are, are listed there. We can there. check to see what, what's going on with all that stuff there. Yes. And then I'm also directing in environmental, uh, like I mentioned, uh, uh, Renaissance Fair, uh, Dickens Fair, uh, at the Cow Palace in San Francisco every year. I think we're in the 40th year, 41st year. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I play a character from Charles Dickens' uh, Pickwick Papers. Okay. Uh, Ingle, he's the uh, a con artist, double-talking con art bounder, takes your spinster aunt off and marries her until he, he's paid off to go away. It's just a scoundrel, but he's a very comedic uh, bad guy. And I'm developing a program uh, that I'm probably going to go full board this, this season, uh, doing tours of London. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's a, it's a fair that's uh, recreated Victorian London. And there's not only characters from Dickens' books doing their scenes from the books throughout the day. Uh, you'll see Scrooge go through a Christmas carol. If you find him early in the day, you can see the whole story. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, there's, uh, you know, David Copperfield and, and Oliver Twist, and you find them, and you'll see scenes from their books throughout the day in the streets and on stages. And then there's seven stages that uh, I have constant shows, both music halls and operas and pantomimes and children's entertainments. It's really a, an immersive fair. And then there's also the historic element where Queen, Eliz Queen Victoria and her retinue do a progress, and you can go to the Adventures Club and meet uh, celebrities like uh, Edgar Allan Poe and Benjamin Disraeli. And uh, so cool! It's a very cool fair. It's and and it's Christmas time. It's actually Christmas Eve in London. Nice. So it's a triple threat and a really a lovely immersive environment. So you, you you really get that feel like you're in a Dickens classic. Yeah. We actually that is have, have folk who do. Dickensian type of events in London and uh, in England come over and see our event and are wowed by it. Very impressed. And, 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 uh, and I can give you a tour in character and uh, we can do a sportsman's tour. We can do a theatrical tour, do a literary tour, a science, a scientist tour where we'll go to the crystal palace and you'll meet some of the scientists of the day and they're in, who'll discuss their inventions. And then we'll go over to, the time machine, H.G. Wells' time machine is represented there, and then we'll go over to the Légende Fantastique, where you meet Jules Verne's characters and, and see perhaps the incredible steam mechanical man. Oh, wow. That is like, that's that's my, that's my mind-blowing for me. I, I love all that stuff. So, Come out. Um, yeah, I, 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 right I, I, I just may have to. I just may have to. But, Jeffrey, I, I really appreciate your time today. It was, uh, like, probably the best interview that I've had thus far because I really think that 
you know, not only did we get to know who Jeffrey is and, and all the, the man behind all the work that you've done, but you're a really deep guy. And I... And John Lovett's character says, get to know me. Yeah, right? And, and, I, and I think that you, you allowed us into to that today. So I really appreciate it. Um, everybody go out and check out everything. I'm going to post, Jeffrey, all the links in your socials in the comments to this okay. video. So everybody can go check it out. It'll give you um, all the direction you need to get to Jeffrey to check out his work. Um, if you haven't watched anything that Jeffrey's in, that's your homework assignment for this weekend. Yeah. Instead, uh, of, instead, of, binge, instead of binge watching crap. <laughs> Preaches Guru and Saved by the Bell and I have a cameo in Johnny Dangerously and Geez, uh, you know, I still get a, a residual now and then from all these, the voice over work I did on like Loverboy and Heathers and stuff. Anyway, uh, thank you for having me on. Oh, no problem, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for tuning in. And this is the Unnormalized Podcast with your host Frankie A. and Jeffrey Weissman. And stay unnormalized, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>